All right, y'all. You're coming in in the middle of, some of you are coming in in the middle of a series on the scripture. We're going we're gonna to talk about uh, the Jesus I never knew in the fall. That's what we're going to look at. But today we're wrapping up uh, our third part in this series. Now, there's a guy named Richard Hayes, and he was talking to a group of pastors. And uh, he's a, an incredible New Testament scholar at Duke Divinity School. And this is what he said to a bunch of pastors. So remember, this is pastors. He said, here's a question for those of you that at some point during the past 50 years have been asked to write an exegesis, which is studying a passage, finding its meaning, on a passage in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. What grade would you have received if you had turned in an essay on, say, Exodus 12, contending that the Passover story is really all about Jesus? In that particular tradition that he was talking to, those pastors said they would all got Fs, because it's not about Jesus. So let's move from the academic world to the real world, shall we? Let's say you open your Bible, and you come to David and Goliath, and you read the story of David and Goliath, and you're like, what's this story about? I mean, what's the point of it? What difference should David and Goliath make in your life and in the world today? And so you try to answer these questions, and you do this by identifying with David, and you you identify with David, and you try to put yourself on the field, and you, you see this nine-foot chiseled, because it says he's built proportionately, chiseled giant walkout, and he's a faith killer. He's before your very eyes killing the faith of the king of Israel, Saul, killing the faith of all of Israel, and you, you pick up some stones... You grab your faith, and you face the giants. And you slay your faith killer. What's the story of David and Goliath about? What difference does it make in your life and the world? Face your giant. Be like David. Pick up your faith. And slay your faith killer this morning. What's threatening you this morning? What faith killer is present in your life? It's time to slay it. Now, several years ago, I was teaching a class on how to read the Bible, and we got to this David and Goliath story, and um, we were doing what we just did here. We talked about the story, what's the point of it, uh, what difference does David and Goliath make in your life and make in the world today? I mean, how does that impact the present? And uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Rob Nettles, who's here, he was an elder here, and they've moved away, and he became a traitor, but now he's back, maybe. Well, he raised his hand, and I said, yes, Rob. And he said, he said why is it that we always identify with David in the story of David and Goliath? Why do we always identify with the heroes in the Bible stories? Why don't any of us ever identify with the Philistines or Goliath? It got so quiet in that room, you could hear the two crickets in the back of the room chirping. How do you read the Bible? Does it matter how you read the Bible? Jesus in our passage today says, 
Oh, it matters. It matters how you read the Bible because you can read the Bible one way and it's going to burn you out. And you can read the Bible another way and you're going to burn within with life. Which way are you going to read the Bible? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. A reading from Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Then he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were uh, going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts burn within us while, we talked, uh, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simeon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 24, sorry, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to the understanding to understanding the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Uh, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, y'all. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Would you open the scriptures to us? And by opening the scriptures, would you open our hearts 
And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so this morning Jesus teaches us how to read the Bible. So you burn within, not out. What's up with these two guys? I mean, ask that question. I mean, seriously, what's up with them? What's their problem? Well, the answer is just really simple, and it's stated in that verse 13. They, they just quit the Jesus movement. They're done. They're wanting to leave everything behind. Look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. That very day is key. That very day. That's the focal point of this whole particular verse. When you want to emphasize something in the original language, you know what you do? If you're a Greek person, you want to emphasize what you're saying in your sentence, you move it to the front of the sentence. That very day. That very day. They quit Jesus. Luke wants you to know what that very day is. What is that very day? Verse 13 would literally read this way. And it's in the original language. I don't know why it's not in your translation. But there's a word that means behold or pay attention. And it's the first word in the sentence. It goes like this. And behold, pay attention. <laughs> that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. What day is it? It's the day when everything changed. It's the day when the world changed cosmically and apocalyptically and personally and powerfully, actively changed. Cosmic forces on this day were released into the world. Apocalyptic powers were unleashed on the world. The Old Testament up to that time called this day the day of the Lord and the last days. On that day, that very day, Jesus rose from the dead. But the two friends missed the meaning of the day. On that very day, they missed it. They quit Jesus. And what's fascinating when you read the story, don't you say to yourself, like, gosh, don't they have any curiosity, though, still? Even if you're quitting Jesus, don't you have any curiosity when some women come back and say, you're never going to believe what just happened. The tomb was empty. And then there was this angelic appearance. Whoa! Right? And they even said, he rose from the dead. I mean, come on, you would have, at least, at least you'd have the curiosity to say, you know, at least let's try to find out who the loser was that stole the body. But they're done. And we get a glimpse into how far they're done in verse 17 when it says they look sad. And a literal reading would go like this. And they stood still looking gloomy, looking like darkness. This morning, Jesus teaches us how to read the Bible. So you burn within, not out. Why are they so deeply disappointed? What's producing their deep disappointment? When my kids were little and we read this account, it was, I always loved reading this account because they, their eyes would get big, <clears throat> and you could see that they were struggling between two emotions. Should they laugh? Should they be in shock? They just weren't quite sure. What should we do, right? Look how Luke sets it up. Look at verse 15. This is how it literally leads. And it, and it happened while they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And it happened is key. This is focal point again. The resurrected Jesus shows up. 
And it happened. The one from the other side concentrates and localizes his presence on a dirt road two miles outside of Jerusalem. This is the stuff of Narnia. This is the stuff that if you were to pull the curtains back, you'd see the rocks singing, you would hear the birds dancing, or you would see them or hear them singing, not dancing. Right? The Leviathan are jumping. The kings of the jungle are roaring because the one from the other side has risen from the dead. But the one, these two don't recognize him. Look at verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. How could they not recognize Jesus? Look at verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. Now look at verse 15. They were talking and discussing together. In the original language, talking and discussing together indicates deep thought. In other words, they're doing deep mental work. They're trying to figure things out. They're trying to understand what just happened in these past three days. They're trying to interpret and they're trying to apply. They're trying to figure out who is Jesus. What about his empty tomb and and this news of resurrection, these angelic appearances? They're trying to bring together all the powers of human reason together to try to interpret and understand who is Jesus. The implications are pretty huge. One of them I want to focus on is this. Reason and science and technology and education and truths of the natural world, they unlock and give us access to the good, the beautiful, and the true reality that's breathtaking, doesn't it? I mean, what would you and I do without Shark Week? And logic, and freshman English, right? And computer information systems and bottled water. What would we do without this stuff? But reason is incomplete. It can't give you all of reality. It can give you some reality, and what it gives is breathtaking, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's true, and it's to be understood and enjoyed but it can't give you the deeper realities of life like intimacy and meaning and love and community. Reason isn't able to deliver us from the racial tensions in the world today or in America today. Reason can't deliver you and me from our self-centeredness, our radical self-absorption. Reason alone can't recognize Jesus. It can't figure him out. It can't interpret him. When reason comes in contact and reason says, brings all its powers to bear on the empty tomb, it just misses it. When it brings all its powers together on the, on the news, You're not the car you drive. You're not the contents of your wallet. You're not your family. You're not your problems. You're not your age. You're not your hopes. And you're not your khakis. And we could add, and you're not your divorce. Or your parents' divorce. Or your addiction. Or your mental illness. Or your grades or your 95-mile-per-hour fastball. 
The two friends put their hope in a political savior. Do you see that? They wanted a national salvation. So what the two friends didn't get, what they put their hope in, is they, they didn't know they were not the abuse and the oppression of Rome. They were not that, but they thought they were. They put their hope in their race's security and power. They put their hope in influence and importance, their need for it, and they didn't realize they're not these things. So I want you to look at verse 16 again, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The word kept is very powerful. It means they were, they were controlled, they were seized, they were taken possession of. What was seizing them? What was controlling them? Their misplaced hope. When they put their trust in this hope, this hope tried to take God's place. And when it takes God's place, you can no longer recognize God. When we hope in good grades and we hope in being friends with the right people and we hope getting into that sorority and that fraternity, that that becomes our hope and that becomes how you're going to see yourself. That's who you are. When your hope becomes, gosh, if I could just be a good Christian, I can have this deep sincerity like Susie does in submitting to God. If I could be this justice-oriented, sacrificing, generous person and live that way. When that happens, when that becomes your hope, you're kept or you're seized or you're controlled by that false hope, and it keeps you from recognizing Jesus. Because the misplaced hope just took God's place. And when it takes God's place, it's never going to satisfy, so it's always going to disappoint you. They are completely devastated because what they hoped in was a political Jesus who would give them a political salvation. What they hoped in is they saw themselves identified so deeply with their race, so deeply with their culture, that it was them. Misplaced hope always disappoints and it keeps you from recognizing Jesus. What happens next, I told this in the first service, I'll be honest, when, when I knew I was going to preach on this passage, I said, I have to, I, I'm going to do a four-part series, I have to preach on this passage, but I really don't want to preach on this passage because I've read this passage so many times, I actually am bored with it. And so I said, on Tuesday, the morning of, of prepping, I said, oh God, would you help me re-experience this text? Could I listen to it almost like it's the first time? Could I come to the text with a sense of naivete and a sense of wonder? And when I got to this part of the text, I was overwhelmed with the spectacular reality of what happens next. <laughs> what happens next is completely unexpected. It takes your breath away. It sets the pattern for recognizing Jesus. So in other words, you come here and you want to know, how do you recognize Jesus? How do you experience Jesus? How do you grow to rest, rely, rejoice in Jesus? How do you move in a deeper friendship with Jesus? How do you begin and continue and grow in encountering Jesus? How do you recognize Jesus? How do you build your life around Jesus that way? This, what happens next, sets the pattern for the history of the church because this is the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. The resurrected one, he's come from the other side and now he's going to encounter the first human beings. These are the two first human beings he's going to encounter. What he does next 
sets the pattern for how he relates to you. For how he reaches you, for how he draws near to you, for how you actually experience him and have a friendship with him. What he does next is breathtaking because what does he do? Does he give a heavenly revelation of himself, some new, wow? Does he at the very least go up to him and say, hey, hey, it's me. It's, it's me. I'm here. I'm here. The first thing the resurrected Jesus does when he encounters two human beings to help them recognize him, to help them experience him, for him to become real in their life, is he reads the Bible to them. He reads the Bible. And I get bored with the Bible. Cosmic, apocalyptic forces shine on the page. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them on all the scriptures of things concerning himself. To recognize the resurrected Jesus... You read the Bible. Jesus shows up <clears throat> in the Bible. Many of you this morning are desperately looking for God. You're desperately looking for Jesus. And truth be told, you've tried everything. And I know you have. You've tried evidence and reasons for God. You've, you've said so many desperate prayers. You fatigue of them. Uh, you've done every spiritual technique you can think of. By spiritual techniques, you've, you've done all the yieldings possible and all the surrenderings that a human being can do in a lifetime. You've grabbed your spiritual pulse and you've checked it, you've checked it from morning till evening, desperately monitoring and managing how you're doing. Uh, you've done Holy Spirit baptisms and Holy Spirit anointings and Holy Spirit fillings and Holy Spirit giftings. You've done everything you can with the Holy Spirit. You've done five steps to humility. You've done two steps to victory. Oh, well, really, ten steps to victory, you find out when you turn the page. Uh, You've done ten-year discipleship programs. You've been in weird small groups longer than any human being should ever be in a small group. You've traveled and you've participated in every range of experiential, high-octane, Worship music and worship service and worship encounters that are as many churches as there are in Waco. Just listen to how these two men experienced Jesus, encountered Jesus. Verse 32, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? while he talked to us and while he opened the scriptures to us. Your heart burns in the Bible. Don't miss this. Their hearts burn and they experience Jesus not apart from the Bible, but with the Bible 
in the Bible. So whatever your plan is and whatever you're thinking, like this is the year I really want to grow my relationship with God. This is the year I really want to learn to build my life around Jesus. This is the year. Whatever your plan is, the Bible must be front and center, must be foundational, must be saturated. It has to include heavy openings and doses of reading the scriptures. Now, what I'm about to say next could possibly change your life. Notice that Jesus didn't teach them how to be like David from the Bible. And I'm going I'm to be as nice as I can here. How to be a good Christian from the Bible. How to obey God so you can be blessed from the Bible. Or a biblical principle for this and a biblical principle for that. Jesus taught them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures, and that's why their hearts burned. Jesus opened up to them with the resurrection, because the resurrection is the final and fullest revelation of God. It's the final and full revelation of God, and that, that resurrection now unlocks the whole meaning of, of all the Bible and all reality. John came up to me after the service and he said, Dorothy Sayers said, the only thing that has ever really happened is Jesus. The meaning of life is Jesus. The meaning of the scriptures is Jesus. Jesus taught them what the Bible was all about, that it's about him, it's about me, he says. He went through the scriptures and the song, he went through every part of the Old Testament scriptures and opened their eyes and interpreted those scriptures that showed it was about him. In fact, he says, wait a minute, you guys read the Bible? How do you not know it's about that I must suffer, that the Son of Man must suffer according to the Bible and, and go into glory? That's just the Old Testament way of saying he must die and he must rise from the dead. Here's the point. You can only understand and you can only experience and you can only apply biblical stories in the Bible if you connect it to the bigger story of Jesus and his salvation. You take any story in the Bible and if it doesn't connect to the bigger story of Jesus and his salvation, we're not understanding it. We're not experiencing the power of it. We're misapplying it. You can find, you can only understand and experience and apply biblical themes. So you go and you grab a biblical theme. Only when that biblical theme finds its, its resolution in Jesus and his salvation, now you understand it. Now the power of it and the burning heart reality of it's released into your life. And here's a big one. You can only understand biblical laws and ethical principles in the Bible when they find their completion and their fulfillment in Jesus and his salvation, or you will burn out. So the Bible is about Jesus, and we all need to grow in what that looks like and how that, how that actually takes place. But can you imagine it might have been something like this when Jesus opened up the Bible and he got to David and Goliath? That's one story I would love to have heard his Bible study on David and Goliath. But maybe we can. Maybe it went something like this, right? Yeah, Goliath, nine feet, chiseled, 
warrior walks out onto the field between the two armies. Two times a day for 40 days, that's 80 times he walks out and he threatens Israel. And the text says all of Israel falls on its knees in fear. Have you ever been so afraid that your knees literally knock? Have you ever had that experience? That's what it says Israel did when he came out and threatened them. Israel's champion was supposed to fight the Philistines' champion. So Israel's champion would be who? King Saul. Remember what we found out about King Saul? It's interesting. How was he described? The tallest man in Israel. And the most handsome. Think Brad Pitt. Right? Or whoever it is today. But ultimately the story isn't about Goliath and it's not about Brad Pitt, and it's not about Israel, and it's not about David, and it's not even about Saul. The text says, ultimately, you know what it says? This is a story about the battle belonging to the Lord, the text says. This is a story about, quote, the Lord saves Israel. So the Lord has a champion, and the Lord's champion slays the giant. And the text says that while David is slaying this giant, all of Israel watched. They did absolutely nothing. They didn't fight. They didn't lift a javelin. All they did was be afraid and watch while someone else fought for them because the battle belongs to the Lord. They didn't save themselves. They didn't work. They didn't perform. You know what it says, too, that after David, literally, when Goliath fell, he walks up and just for Israel's sake, he takes his head, cuts off his head, holds it up, right? That's what you did back then. And all of Israel rose and participated in David's victory. They rested, they relied. They rejoiced in the champion's victory. I would imagine that probably at this point, Jesus turns to these two and says, I'm the better David. I'm the better David. And I save, and I'm the champion by my death and my resurrection. This morning, Jesus teaches us how to read the Bible. So you burn within, not out. Amen.